I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, this is Dr. Christopher Perrin, and welcome to another Cafe Scully podcast in which we seek to bring restful, contemplative learning back to our schools, homeschools, and lives. That is to say to bring Scolé back to school. Welcome to this podcast, which will focus on the writings of Simone Weil, who lived from 1909 to 1943. She had much to say about contemplation and education and how education and study really is deeply connected at its roots to attention, prayer, and love. If you've listened to my earlier podcast on A.G. Sertelange and ecstasy and study, you'll find that Simone Weil is in conversation with Sertelange. You might remember, if you did listen to that podcast, that Sertelange says that study can be regarded as a prayer to the truth. Who talks that way today? What is... How can study be related to prayer? Well, the Latin roots remind us from studere that study is a, is a love. It's a, it's a fondness and it's an eagerness for something. The Latin noun was studium. To be a student, at least etymologically speaking, is to have an eagerness and fondness for truth, goodness, beauty, a yearning to know. Well, that yearning in Simone Weil's writings is a kind of stretching forth. It's an attention. It's a focus. And she connects attention to study and study and attention to prayer and therefore to the love of God and further by extension to the love of neighbor. There's a wonderful essay that you can download by Simone Weil called Reflections on the Right Use of School Studies with a View to the Love of God. What a title. <laughs> it's, a, it's an essay that's also contained in her book of essays. That book is entitled Waiting for God, and you can order that on Amazon.com. But you can get this essay. Uh, you can download it. It's also included in the book, the anthology called The Great Tradition, edited by Richard Gamble. It's subtitled, Classic Readings on What It Means to Be an Educated Human Being. That's where I first encountered it, and I'd like to talk about this essay with you today. First, though, a quote from Sertelanger. Towards the end of his book, The Intellectual Life, Its Spirit, Conditions, Methods, he says this, according to the angelic doctor, by which he means Aquinas, according to the angelic doctor, contemplation begins in love 
and ends in joy. It begins in the love of the object and the love of knowledge as an act of life. It ends in the joy of ideal possession and of the ecstasy it causes. So you can see here, Sertelange thinks that we are to become as almost enraptured with the love of an object that we find in this good cosmos created by God that we want to know, that we want to possess. And we contemplate it as a way of possessing it and engaging it. And it begins in joy. It ends in joy. There's something joyful about perceiving something true, good, and beautiful in this cosmos and seeking a kind of interpenetration with that lovable object, that lovely object. Augustine, in, in, in various ways, says that education is largely a matter of helping students to love that which is lovely. So, here we are in this tradition of loving the lovely and turning attention in study that, that can become prayer and is related to prayer. Now, for some of you, that is a wild thought. It may be an idea you've never contemplated or encountered before. So this reflection, this essay on contemplation will require for some of you some slow contemplation yourself. Well, who was Simone Weil? Well, she was born to Jewish parents, born in 1909. She was born in Paris. Her father was a doctor. She was brought up uh, she was educated well by her parents, and she she studied well. She studied philosophy. It was in her 20s, though, that she began to consider the Christian faith and became converted to Roman Catholicism. She was active in some political causes. You can imagine the time that she lived, the rise of Nazism, World War II. And she died of very poor health. She died young at age 34. And her writings were really not well recognized or certainly widely recognized while she was alive. But after her death, more and more people discovered the profundity of her writings. So in this particular essay that we're looking at, the reflection of the right use of school studies with a view to the love of God, she lays out her view of just how important attention is in study and its relationship to the love of God. Her opening line is this, the key to a Christian conception of studies is the realization that prayer consists of attention. It is the orientation of all the attention of which the soul is capable toward God. The quality of the attention counts for much in the quality of the prayer. Warmth of heart cannot make up for it. She's going to say that academic work does have its place. Just like, by the way, Joseph Pieper says in his book, Leisure, the Basis of Culture. And as the church has testified for centuries, there is a good active life. It's the, it's the life that's represented by Martha in the story of Christ visiting Mary and Martha in Luke 10. You remember that story? Martha is busy preparing or cleaning up after a meal. And Mary is sitting at the feet of Christ enjoying a great conversation. Martha grows frustrated, and she comes not to her sister, but to Jesus himself and says, 
Jesus, tell my sister to help me. Do you remember Christ's response? Martha, Martha, you are busy or anxious about many things. But Mary has chosen the better part, and it will not be taken from her. So, the church fathers looked from, from Augustine to Gregory, Aquinas, looked at this story and agreed that Martha represents something very good in the Christian life. Active, benevolent love for one's neighbor. Here she was serving Jesus in her home, offering hospitality. So what she did was not wrong. It just wasn't the best thing to do at the time. Because there must be a time as well when we sit with Jesus. We sit, as it were, at his feet. And we enjoy communion, conversation with him. This represents prayer and contemplation. The slowing down, the lingering, the savoring that is needed for our souls to be nourished as well. So Martha represents active love. And Mary represents contemplative love. Both are necessary for a full life. The trouble? We often don't choose the right thing at the right time and our loves aren't ordered well. Often in busy American life, frenetic American life, I might say, our Martha swallows our Mary. So in this essay, Simone Weil, by the way, her name is spelled W-E-I-L, so you might want to say Veil or Whale, but it's Ve in the French. In this essay, she's going to say, yes, academic work is necessary, but her, her, her point is to emphasize what we often miss, our inattention to attention in study. So just note, she's going to be arguing for a balance. She says some remarkable things, and it's just worth me reading a few things. She says, for example... If we concentrate our attention on trying to solve a problem of geometry, and if at the end of an hour we are, not, we are no nearer to doing so than at the beginning, we have nevertheless been making progress each minute of that hour in another more mysterious dimension. Without knowing or feeling it, this apparently barren effort has brought more light into the soul. The result will one day be discovered in prayer. Now, this is important for for Vey, for Simone Vey. She thinks that there is a, a similar movement of the soul in study as in prayer. And remember, Sertolange has said, study is a prayer. Study is a prayer to the truth. And But Vey is teasing out the importance of attention in both of these movements of the soul. Isn't it hard to pray? Isn't it hard to slow down and just contemplate something that is good, true, or beautiful for more than five minutes? She's going to address that, but let me keep reading. She says, Moreover, it may very likely be felt in some department of the intelligence in no way connected with mathematics, this attention that we are learning to give, even in doing mathematics. That's me speaking, by the way. Perhaps... He who made the unsuccessful effort in mathematics or geometry will one day be able to grasp the beauty of a line of Racine, the French playwright, more vividly on account of it. But it is certain that his effort will bear its fruit 
in prayer. There's no doubt whatsoever about that. Now, I wonder if you doubt her claim. She's saying working on a geometry problem, if we learn to attend to the geometry well, even if we don't come to a resolution of the geometry problem, is training our soul to attend to truth. And thus, it is training us to pray and will bear fruit in prayer. There aren't too many educators who think this way about study and mathematics or Latin or Greek or history or anything in a good curriculum. She goes on and she says, The best support for faith is the guarantee that if we ask our Father for bread, He does not give us a stone. Quite apart from explicit religious belief, every time that a human being succeeds in making an effort of attention with the sole idea of increasing his grasp of truth, he acquires a greater aptitude for grasping it, even if his effort produces no visible fruit. So, in other words, going back to that geometry problem, the effort of seeking truth in geometry is increasing our capacity, our faculty, our aptitude for seeking and finding truth. And this, of course, to Simone Bay is related to prayer. Because prayer is a contemplation of not truth with a small t, but the giver of truth and all the truths that he has is sprinkled through the cosmos. His fingerprints, as it were. Well, she makes some application now to study and learning. Students, she says, must therefore work without any wish to gain good marks because the resolving of the problems, the getting of good marks and good grades are not really the true end and purpose of education. That's me speaking. She says again, students must therefore work without any wish to gain good marks, to pass examinations, to win school successes, without any reference to their natural abilities and tastes, applying themselves equally to all their tasks with the idea that each one will help to form in them the habit of that attention, which is the substance of prayer. When we set out to do a piece of work, it is necessary to wish to do it correctly. She's not saying that we shouldn't want to find the resolutions to various geometric problems. When we set out to do a piece of work, it's necessary to wish to do it correctly because such a wish is indispensable in any true effort. Underlying this immediate objective, however, of doing something correctly, our deep purpose should aim solely at increasing the power of attention with a view to prayer. So, just to restate in some other words, yes, we want to solve the geometry problem. Yes, we want to translate this Latin paragraph well and understand it. But our deeper purpose is to increase the power of attention with a view to prayer. Meaning for the Christian student, the way she puts it, the student who loves God. The Christian student will engage studies 
realizing that to learn mathematics or Latin or history, etc., is to lead us to God, lead us to see his truths, his goodness, his beauty everywhere, and therefore to lead us into praise and petition and adoration and even confession, therefore prayer. What would your class look like? What would your teaching look like? What would your own learning look like if this was your disposition to grow in your power to attend? That Latin word that's behind attend is ad tenere or atenere, which means to stretch forth, to stretch. And, you know, it's related to our English word Tension. We stretch too much, we're tense. But the metaphor here is a, a stretching forth of one's hand in order to receive, an opening up of one's hands in order to receive some good gift, some truth, some goodness, some beauty. That, she says, is the more important aim of all of our activities as a student. To learn to attend, or to increase our power of attention with a view to prayer. It's after saying this that she mentions this. She says, if these conditions are perfectly carried out, there is no doubt that school studies are quite as good a road to sanctity as any other. In other words, school studies are a path to holiness sanctification. Do we think that way regularly? Or are we caught up in so much utilitarian thinking about education that we're always thinking about covering material, getting through a book, preparing students for the test so they can get a good grade? For what purpose? Well, because we have adopted utilitarian instrumental habits, practices, and even curricula, we often don't do what Simone Weil says we should be doing in education, which is increasing our power of attention and study with a view to prayer and the love of God. But she'll go on, and she's going to say some other remarkable things that I think will inspire you. She says, The intelligence can only be led by desire. For for there to be desire, she says, there must be pleasure and joy in the work. And she's talking about studies. Let me, let me just repeat the sentence again. The intelligence can only be led by desire. For there to be desire, there must be pleasure and joy in the work. The intelligence only grows and bears fruit in joy. The joy of learning is as indispensable in study as breathing is to running. Where it is lacking, there are no real students but only poor caricatures of apprentices who, at the end of their apprenticeship, will not even have a trade. I'm going to read that entire section again. It's worth knowing and contemplating. The intelligence can only be led by desire. For there to be desire, there must be pleasure and joy in the work. The intelligence only grows and bears fruit and joy. The joy of learning is as indispensable in study as breathing is in running. 
where it is lacking, there are no real students, but only poor caricatures of apprentices who, at the end of their apprenticeship, will not even have a trade. This is how important Simone Bay thinks attention, prayerful attention and study is to academics. She goes on. It is the part played by joy in our studies that makes of them a preparation for spiritual life, for desire directed towards God is the only power capable of raising the soul. Other kinds of academic work without this might have their place in just getting some things done, acquiring some skills, but will have no staying power without this kind of intentive love. Attentive love. Now she's going to address, and I want to address with you, what what it, what it means to have this kind of attention and how it can be. She says, attention is an effort, the greatest of all efforts, perhaps, but it is a negative effort. Of itself, it does not involve tiredness, or we might say weariness. When we become tired, attention is scarcely possible anymore, unless we have already had a good deal of practice. It's better to stop working altogether to seek some relaxation and then a little later to return to the task. We have to press on and loosen up alternately just as we breathe in and out. In other words, there's a place for some active work and we will become weary sometimes in our academic work and then we need to relax and rest. But but she goes on to say 20 minutes of concentrated, untired attention is infinitely better than three hours of the kind of frowning application that leads us to say with a sense of duty done, I have worked well. But in spite of all appearances, it is also far more difficult. It's far more difficult to engage in this attentive, negative effort, a kind of effort that is hard but doesn't involve the kind of strenuous work that we typically associate with academic activity. That's me speaking. She says, but in spite of all appearances, it is also far more difficult. Something in our soul has a far more violent repugnance for true attention than the flesh has for bodily fatigue. Hmm. This is worthy of our time to contemplate. I'm going to read it again. But in spite of all appearances, it is also far more difficult. Something in our soul has a far more violent repugnance for true attention than flesh has for bodily fatigue. In other words, if you're trying to get up in the morning and go for a run, you know the resistance of your flesh to engaging in that kind of exercise at times. But she's saying our souls have a more violent resistance. She calls it a repugnance for true attention. Again, what if I were to say to you, I would like you to take the next five minutes and engage in silent contemplative prayer. Maybe just reading Psalm 1 and thinking nothing nothing but about Psalm 1 as you read it for the next five or ten minutes. Is your soul resistant? 
Is that effort that you must exert hard? Yes, it is. And yet, and yet it's a kind of passive effort just to become open and empty and receptive when we're used to being so busy and frenetic. She's going to make this clear in her own words. This is what she says. Attention consists of suspending our thought, leaving it detached, empty, and ready to be penetrated by the object. It means holding our minds within reach of this thought. Well, this is hard to do. Very hard to do. And when do we even provide space and time and conditions in our teaching, in our classes, for our students to have this kind of attention where they would contemplate, where they would push out the busy thoughts that are constantly coursing through their minds and open themselves up to something that's beautiful before them, like Psalm 1, or a geometry problem, or a Latin or Greek translation. She says, all wrong translations, all absurdities in geometry problems, all clumsiness of style, and all faulty connection of ideas in composition and essays, all such things are due to the fact that thought has seized upon some idea too hastily. And being thus prematurely blocked, it is not open to the truth. The cause is always that we have wanted to be too active and we have wanted to carry out a search. So these are, this is Martha and Mary again. We want to be busy about seeking for the truth, but sometimes we don't just stop and listen and let Christ give us the truth, as it were, without effort, without academic strenuous work by receiving it with an open hand. She says, We do not obtain the most precious gifts by going in search of them, but by waiting for them. Could that be a maxim in your classroom, in your teaching? Students, the most precious gifts that you will ever receive, you will not get by going out and searching for them, but by waiting for them. I'm thinking of that poem by John Milton on blindness when he says, They also serve who stand and wait. You know the, the, old, the old maxim, don't just stand there, do something. Well, there's a time for reversing that. Don't just do something. Stand there. Wait. Listen. What is the truth that needs to penetrate you? Will you open yourself up so that it can? It's in this context that she says context that she says this. The solution of a geometry problem does not in itself constitute a precious gift. What? She says the solution of a geometry problem does not in itself constitute a precious gift, but the same loss applies to it because it is the image of something precious. There's something, as it were, behind, rooted in that geometry problem that is the precious thing. She writes, 
being a little fragment of particular truth, it is a pure image of the unique, eternal, and living truth, the very truth that once in a human voice declared, I am the truth, with a capital T. Isn't that profound? She follows that statement with this. Every school exercise thought of in this way is like a sacrament because it becomes a visible sign of an invisible grace, we might say to use theological language. It becomes a sign of that greater truth, which is Christ himself, the truth, who is infused in everything that is good, true, and beautiful that we encounter. And then we can conclude where she concludes in this wonderful essay that this kind of sacramental attention to truth, waiting upon truth, setting our hearts upon it, as she puts it, yet not allowing ourselves to just constantly be going out in search of it, this turns us to prayer. It, 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 is, it is a kind of prayer. And therefore, we are learning to attend and glorify and, and, and express our thanks and gratitude to God who is the truth. And so our love of God is being kindled, and it cannot but then lead to a love of neighbor. As we learn to attend even to geometry and to Latin, we learn to attend to God, who is the author of all the truth we encounter in those disciplines. And then we learn, by extension, to attend to our neighbor, our neighbor who may be suffering, to empty ourselves of all of our, uh, of our soul's own contents, is the way she puts it, so that we are focused intently and solely on our neighbor's needs. And thus, our love for God and prayer is extended to our love for our neighbor because we have learned how to focus. We have learned how to savor, to linger, in some cases to relish and ponder. We've learned how to contemplate. We've learned how to attend and so she puts it this way, this way of looking at our neighbor is, first of all, who might be in need, is, first of all, attentive. The soul empties itself of all of its own contents in order to receive into itself the being it is looking at, the neighbor whom we love. Well, we see how truth is connected to truth. And how our seeking after and our opening ourselves up to a truth that we would receive is training our soul to love the true, the good, and the beautiful. And it turns us to prayer. It turns us to praise. It turns us to petition and adoration. And then as we see our faults, it turns us to confession. And it enables us also to attend to our neighbor. Remarkable essay, worthy of all of our attention, learning how studies relate to prayer with a view to the love of God. Well, I hope that's been an encouragement and an inspiration to you. It certainly has been to me. Once again, you can take a look at this essay in the book, The Great Tradition, edited by Richard Campbell. It's there, or you can download a PDF somewhere on the internet. I might also just mention that 
the course that I teach on classicalu.com on scole or restful learning will also touch upon these themes if you want to engage them in a more uh, course-like environment there on classicalu.com. Well, thanks for traveling with me through this essay by Simone Bay. I'll see you next week or two, probably returning to Sertelanger. I think I would like to look at his discussion of study being a prayer to the truth. Until next time, thanks for joining me. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.